Good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in Ephesians 2 today, and if you don't have a Bible but you want to grab one nearby, there are some under the chairs there, and we'll be on page 976, 977 in the black Bibles you'll see there under the chairs. We're looking at the Advent theme of peace today. We've been setting aside these different themes each week to focus on what is it that Jesus brings on his arrival. So Advent means the arrival of someone or something very important. So when we talk about Christmas time, we often use the word Advent to remind ourselves that it's about the arrival of Jesus, Jesus showing up on the scene. And so each week we've been dwelling on these beautiful themes of what Jesus brings. This week we're going to talk about peace. What does it mean that Jesus brings peace into our life? There's a a broad definition and a narrow definition of peace, right? The narrow definition of peace would be you're having a conflict with somebody and that conflict is now over. Whereas before you were fighting, now everything is cool. It's okay now, right? There's harmony. So there was discord, now there's harmony. That's the narrow definition of peace. The broader definition of peace would be the Hebrew concept of peace. We often use the word shalom. Have you all heard that word before, shalom? That's the Hebrew word for peace. And it has a much broader sense of the way things are supposed to be. I always joke about like that first bite of sizzling fajitas, right? Or uh, when your kids are just sweetly playing together and everything's cool, right? I mean, that's that, it's just like, ah, this is what life is supposed to be like. We were doing a a wedding yesterday. It was rain, 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 rain. And then wedding time, it was blue skies and sunny and gorgeous. You know, it's like those moments where you're like, ah, this is, it's working. You know, like this is how life is supposed to be. And so in Hebrew, shalom has this broader concept of peace of of just, ah, everything is good. And that's the, the future we look forward to, right? When everything is made right. All things will be all sewn up together in Christ. So this morning we're going to read in Ephesians 2 and we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty of how Jesus accomplishes peace in our life. What, what does that look like? How, how does that work itself out um, so that we can experience real peace in this world? The letter of Ephesians is written to primarily a non-Jewish audience, so primarily people of other tribes, they were outside of God's dealings with his covenant people Israel, where he gave uh, his word and his covenants and his promises. So these are the other people, all the rest of the world, most of us here, 99% of us are, are non-Jews. So uh, the other tribes, the Gentiles, as it's often spoken of in the New Testament. Ephesians written primarily to these people, and here he's talking to them about the peace that can be found in Jesus. So we'll pick it up in verse 12. If you'll read with me, Ephesians 2, verse 12 through 19, he says in verse 2, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So he's saying you're outside of God's dealings with his people Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul's acknowledging God was dealing with Israel, right? God was dealing with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. He He rescued this people Israel out of Egypt. He revealed his law to them. And he made promises to King David to set up a kingship. And so there are very specific ways God was dealing with this tribe, Israel. And he's saying to these other people, these pretty much all of us, anybody outside of Israel, saying you were outsiders. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. And in verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So, making peace. And this is how he did it. He made peace through Jesus. Verse 16 says, And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Amen? Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us this morning. God, we ask for your help today. We pray that your spirit would meet us and help us to understand what you're saying here. We pray that you would teach us not only to know the peace that you offer us in Jesus, but to live it out around us. God, we pray that it would have a real effect in our day-to-day lives. God, help us to have open minds. You know that we are, we are often hard-hearted. We want to do things our way. So we, we pray that you would soften us so that we can hear and listen what you have to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Any of you remember the first time you got in a fight? Do you remember that? Like I can remember four years old biting a kid and then feeling really bad about it later. I mean, do you, do you remember those sorts of things? Or uh, getting older and getting in a fight. A couple of times I got in, you know, came to blows with like my best friends when I was 12, 13, right? I mean, just getting in a fist fight. Any of you ever gotten in a fist fight? You don't have to admit it publicly if you don't want to. Um, maybe if you haven't gotten into a fist fight, maybe you can remember a time that you just got really, really angry with someone and it just was bubbling up and you, you turned red or you were yelling or you using words that you wouldn't normally use with that person, right? Can you at least relate to that? A, a time when there's hostility, yeah? Okay, we've got some honest people up front. That's good. I think at some level we've all been there where we have just been boiling inside. And I, I think what generally happens when there's discord, hostility, anger, boiling up is something very dear to us is being threatened, right? It might, might be our people, it might, you know, might be our mother, right, that's being threatened, or our sister, or uh, just the group that we belong to, right? Someone's saying something about, you know, Tony Romo and you get really angry or, you know. <laughs> Um, whatever it may be, there might be some association of something that is dear to you and it's being threatened and so you boil with anger because you want to protect that thing that's dear to you. It may be uh, you are being threatened and you know, we're all very dear to ourselves, so then we get defensive and want to protect ourselves. But I think what is going on here in Ephesians is we're, we're being told that, that the real issue is our hostility towards God. I mean, I don't want to downplay the, the, real, the very real hostility we have uh, towards other people. That's real. That happens, and that's something we need to deal with. But, but Paul frames it in, we have hostility with God. That, that's where the peace and the reconciliation needs to happen. And so if you are roiling inside, James talks about it this way. James says, why are you quarreling? Why are you fighting? It's because of your own heart, because of the desires within you. And so there can be a very real injustice. There can be such a thing as, as righteous indignation, righteous anger. That is possible. I'll, I'll admit that. Some of you have been wronged, and, and my heart breaks when I hear stories of, of ways that legitimate injustices have been, have been perpetrated on people. Ab- abuse, wrongs. And I understand that. And, and my prayers are, are with you this morning because this might be hard to hear. But 99% of the time, the issue is between us and God. The issue is between us and God, and that's what Paul hammers home in this text. 
when, when uh, the, the big birth announcement of Jesus shows up on the scene and he announces it in Luke chapter 2 to the shepherds in the field, he says, peace, peace is coming. This king is finally here and peace is coming. And so now Paul is going to unwrap for us what does that look like? How does that work? How does actual peace come through Jesus? And the first thing that he shows us is that peace is through Christ. He's the, the means by which the peace is accomplished. So peace is going to come through Christ, and when we understand that peace comes through Christ, that's going to help us see in the second point that really our problem all along was with God, not as much with our neighbor like we thought it was. It's not so much with the person next to me as it is with God himself. And then finally, we'll see then how it works itself out. So then, then that helps us accomplish peace with other people, right? So the first thing I want to show us is how peace comes through Christ. So if you look again and uh, verse 13, he, he's very blatant about it. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's saying the mechanism by which peace has taken place is through the blood of Christ. It's in Christ Jesus. It's what he's done. When we talk about faith in Christ, the New Testament often uses the phrase in Christ, meaning we have union with him. Uh, often the phrase is used, we're hidden in him, it says in Colossians. Another, another kind of language that's used a lot in the New Testament is that we're clothed with Christ. He covers us. So you might feel great shame. You might feel uh, broken. You might feel like a loser. And Jesus' perfect beauty and righteousness clothes you. It, it covers you. And so we have peace in Christ Jesus, it says. It goes on in verse 14 and, and fleshes it out more and says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul is speaking, I said earlier, that Ephesians is written primarily to non-Jews. Paul is speaking as a Jew and saying there was hostility between the Jews and the non-Jews, right? So in today's language, we could say the Jews were the good people, the religious people, and the non-Jews were like the wild ones, right? The rebellious people. We see these kind of dynamics in our culture today, right? We have uh, Christians that often think of themselves as being better than other people, and then there's the rebellious people out there following their own heart, following the God of the culture, doing wild stuff. And there can be hospil- uh, hostility between those two groups, right? And Paul is here saying, us Jews, there was hostility with those of you that were pagans or were non-Jews or weren't a part of the covenant people of God. There was real hostility, but that hostility has come to an end through Jesus. Jesus is the one that's broken down that wall. He says, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. It's been torn down. Verse 15, he uses really strong language by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So he's saying he's abolished these laws and these commandments. Now does that mean abolished in the sense that God doesn't want us to keep the law anymore? Like it used to be bad to murder people, now it's cool because Jesus has come, right? Is that what, he, is that what he's saying? This is a theological test. Okay, I think most of you have passed. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I don't care anymore about wrong and right. You know, it's no longer God's standards of righteousness, but now you can make up whatever feels good for you. That's not what our culture would say, but that's not what he's saying here. He's saying he's abolished this, this rubric by which people think they can accomplish a righteousness by keeping the law. The great mistake that the Jews made was thinking they could actually accomplish it. All along throughout the Old Testament, he said, really, the the issue is not your external circumcision, it's the circumcision of your heart. And really the issue is not so much in the keeping of all these letters of the law, but understanding that you're God's precious people and the grace that he has for you. And so God repeatedly showed them that in the sacrificial system to show that they needed a sacrifice, to show that they needed 
forgiveness. In Romans, it goes into great detail to explain this, that the law reveals God's righteousness. So we still think the law is worth keeping, right? We still think it's, it's good to not murder people, it's good to love people, it's good to not steal, right? We still agree with the law, we still want to keep the law, but the law itself only reveals the righteousness of God in the sense of his standards, but it doesn't save us. It doesn't fix our problem. If we just see the law, we're still in hostility towards it. We're, we're still either faking it, like, I can keep this, I can do it, and we're lying, or we're in open rebellion to it. And that's basically one, or two, one of two ways that we react to the law. God's righteous law is revealed, and we either lie and pretend to keep it, or we openly rebel and say, forget this, this is too hard. And there's hostility. There's hostility. But in Jesus, that hostility has been torn down. The dividing wall has been broken. The religious and the irreligious can all be one in Jesus now. We don't find our salvation in being better than other people. And we don't find our salvation in being wild and following our own heart. We now find our salvation in Jesus. So there's now oneness. There's now unity through Christ. I was remembering when it used this terminology of the wall being torn down between the two people groups. I was thinking of the Berlin Wall. Any of you old enough to remember the Berlin Wall, right? This whole idea of an iron curtain and this idea of, of dividing east and west. Uh, and this wall was torn down. And I remember watching on the news when people were literally tearing it down. There's a picture I have here of a guy with a sledgehammer just slamming into the wall to tear it down. Some people have actual pieces of the wall as souvenirs from that time. You guys have one? Um, so these are like a piece of history to remember that there was a wall there and now it's been torn down. And if you go now to Berlin, when we've gone to do Young Life camps in Berlin, you can see where the wall used to be on the ground. You can see these pavers that are you know, of a different uh, texture and a different color than the other pavers in the road and they've still marked where the wall used to be. But it's gone. You know, Now there are streets over it and there are buildings over it and it's all changed now. It's all been torn down. And what Paul is saying here in the text is that Jesus is the sledgehammer that ripped the wall down. Jesus is that sledgehammer that ripped that wall down. He's the one that abolished the law, and he abolished the law by keeping the law. He is the only one that ever kept it perfectly. Right? So I said earlier that there are religious people that lie and pretend we keep it, and then there are the irreligious people that rebel and say, forget this, it's too hard. Jesus actually kept it for us. Jesus kept it for us. He was perfect in our place, and so... The New Testament again and again hits this theme that he's, he's the better Adam, right? Adam failed, and we all, just like Adam, we fail. We do our own thing. We say, I want to be my own God. I want to go my own way. But Jesus was the better Adam that was obedient, that honored God. Jesus always loved the way he was supposed to love. Jesus always showed compassion the way he was supposed to show compassion. He was always brave when he needed to be brave. A lot of us, we know how to be brave. We know how to be compassionate. But sometimes we do them at the wrong time, Right? Sometimes we're brave when we should be compassionate and compassionate when we should be brave, but Jesus always got those things right. He always did it right, and so he offers us his own life so we can be in union with him, hidden in Christ, covered with his glory and beauty and adopted by God so that God's delighted in us. Those of us that are fake religious liars, we're loved and delighted in because of Christ. Those of us that are rebellious pagans that that wander, we're loved and delighted in through Christ by faith in him. And so he adopts us into our family. He makes us his own. And then what Paul's going to work out is that that is what has the social implications. That is what helps us to be at peace with other people. That is what changes us. 
See, we're changed from the inside out by having now a new relationship with God, by having Christ accomplish peace for us. That is what then works itself out so that we relate differently with people. There was a great illustration of this in John Piper's book, Bloodlines. I shared this before a year or two ago after reading that book. John Piper wrote a book about racial reconciliation called Bloodlines. It's a great book. And he uses the example of William Wilberforce. Have you all ever heard of William Wilberforce? The famous uh, parliamentary guy in England that was a part of the government there and a part of abolishing slavery and the slave trade in England. So it finally happened basically when he was on his deathbed. It had been his life work. And so what he's most famous for in the history books is helping to abolish slavery in England. But guess what's the one book he ever published? He only published one book in his life. He just wrote one book. The rest of his work was in government. He wrote one book on salvation by grace and the importance of guarding that and how precious that was for the church to cling to salvation by grace through Christ alone. That was the fuel that drove William Wilberforce. So I want you to see that Christ is the sledgehammer. Walls get knocked down. Things change. It has dramatic social implications. But for William Wilberforce, and I believe for all of us, Christ is the one that drives that. He's the fuel, knowing that our salvation is in him, and it's not in what we do wrong or right. It's not in the tribe we belong to. It's not in where we grew up. It's not in our neighborhood. It's not in how much money we have. It's in Christ. And when we recognize it's in Christ, that's what actually begins to change the way that we live. The the next implication of this is something that it's not really stated positively, but we kind of retro-engineer this from the, from the text, is that we accomplish peace with God and that our hostility is with God. The text doesn't talk a lot about, you're so hostile towards God, you're so rebellious towards God, but it becomes very clear that, that that's the underlying problem, right? So when you look here in the text, if you look at verse 16, it says, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So if we're reconciled to God, again, we follow the implication, that means we're not at peace with God. We need peace with God. We have hostility with God. He says it a different way in verse 17. He says, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. In verse 18, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So he's saying it in a different way there, right? We were fatherless, no access to the Father. Now we have access to the Father. Now we're adopted. We're in His family. We're loved. We're held. It says we were uh, not reconciled to God. Now we're reconciled to God. There was hostility. There was discord. We were rebellious. We didn't want God to be our God. We wanted these other things to be our God, right? Think about it in your own life. What are the things that you've rested your weight on? What are the things that you've invested uh, your hope in? Those are the other gods we've chosen on our own intellect, our own desires, our own pleasures, whatever it may be, are the things that we look to to save us, to heal us, to help us. Those are our gods. And so that means there's, there's hostility with the real God. He's the real God. And He's a jealous God. And He knows we'll only be whole in relationship with Him. And so through Christ, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. There's a picture here that I think illustrates this well. This is an old uh, woodcut of Adam and Eve being cast out of Eden, cast out of the garden, a story that's told in the first few chapters of Genesis. Um, Very early on in the Bible, the story goes very wrong. Adam and Eve decide to be their own gods and not to trust God, not to trust the one that created them and gave them this perfect garden, but to do their own thing. 
And in doing so, they, they lost the blessings of the garden. And obviously none of us were there, but all of us know what that feels like. All of us live that in our daily experience. We live the reality of being cast out of Eden. We live the reality of not being in the perfection of paradise anymore. We know what it's like to not live in paradise. I mean, Central Texas is very nice, but we still have this, this nagging feeling of, I'm, I'm, not out, I'm, not, I'm outside, I'm not inside where I want to be. I'm not in paradise, I'm out of paradise. I'm, I'm locked out, I'm pushed out, I'm cast out. The, the peace of reconciliation with God, this being in His presence, being in His family, being no longer hostile with Him, but now reconciled with Him, that's the promise of, of entering back into paradise. We look forward to the full fruit of that when we see Him face to face, when all things are made right, when, when everything is sewn up in Christ. That, that's the future. We look forward to it all coming together. But now, now we can have the experience. We can know the peace of being reconciled with the Father of not being at war with him anymore. And we know that peace, that changes the way that we live on a day-to-day basis. I want to say again, I, I know that you may have legitimate gripes with people that have wronged you. Again, people may have done terrible things in your life. And I want to say, number one, take that to God, because God does care. Talk to him about that, because God is a God of justice. And he will right all wrongs. That's one of the promises that we have. So you can talk to him about that. Don't be bitter with God because of the ways that people have treated you in unjust ways, because of stupid systems that have mistreated you. Take it to God. Talk to God about that. He does care. But the other side of that is know that our our biggest gripe is with God himself. Just recognize that. We have to come to a place of understanding that we are like Adam and Eve and we decided to go our own way. And our biggest gripe is with God Himself. And so I would say that the first step for us is to come to that point of repentance. Say, God, I know I've, I've been living as a rebel and I need to come to peace with You. And I know that can only happen through what Jesus has accomplished for me, taking, him sins, taking our sins upon Himself and giving us His righteousness coming to that place of realization and repentance and turning from being our own God and trusting Him. That, that's the only way we can have peace with Him. What it talks about here, having access in one spirit to the Father, being, being adopted back into His family, the, the vision of Zephaniah 3.17, the Father rejoicing over us with singing, delighting in us as His child. So, so come to that point of repentance and faith in God so that you can have peace with Him. And then begin asking him to right those wrongs, those, those social problems we have, those quarrels, those fights that we have with other people. Say, God, show me what to do next. You've got to recognize first the problem in you before you can work out the problems you have with other people. And then say, God, help me. Recognize sometimes, sometimes it's hard to come to a place of perfect reconciliation with other people, right? Sometimes it, it might just not be possible. Sometimes those People may want to continue to treat you wrongly. They may not be repentant. They may not uh, want restoration. And so as you wrestle with that with God, you ask Him to help you uh, live in real forgiveness with them. But also, a second prayer would be, God, will you help me to use whatever wrongs that have been done against me, whatever injustices that have been perpetrated against me, 
will you help me to use those as opportunities to love other people? Because there's going to be unique ways that you're going to be able to sympathize with other people and love them because of the pain that you've gone through being similar to the pain that they've gone through. So it doesn't, it doesn't make the things you've gone through right. And again, I, my prayers are with you for those of you that have been hurt and have been wrong. I, I know it is hard. But if you can come to peace with God, God can supernaturally, supernaturally use those things in your life so that you can minister to other people. And I would make that a, a point of prayer with him. He will use you. But the last thing that we see then is then we have peace with the other tribes. We have peace with other people. We have a social peace now because Christ has accomplished peace with God. So now because we're restored to the Father, because now we recognize the forgiveness offered in Christ, we have a restored relationship with God, we can then have peace with other people. That, that comes last. It's the fruit of the peace that we have spiritually with God. So we see this in verse 19. He says it this way in 19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So it's this, this vision of, of unity with other people, right? This new people that God is building. We call it the church. It's not a, a building. It's a spiritual building, right? It's people from every tongue and tribe and nation. He goes on and he says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone of this building in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so when people see all of the tribes being built together on the foundation of Jesus and his word, then people see the Spirit of God dwelling there. People see God living in us when we come together from every tribe and every direction. God builds us together and this supernatural thing takes place where God actually see, where people actually see God at work in our lives. It's this beautiful thing. And I want to point out this verse later on in the next chapter that I think is a great illustration of this, uh, a further or maybe deeper way to explain this uh, multi-tribe piece that now occurs. If you look in verse 10, Chapter 3, verse 10 of Ephesians. So just the next chapter. This great phrase here is he's talking about the, the mystery of Jesus being unfolded in us in these different people groups. He says in verse 10, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And I want to just fixate on that word manifold, right? Manifold is a word that kind of means many, many folds. It means variegated, uh, diverse, right? In Greek, the word is polypoikolos, which, which literally means multicolored. And I just think that's kind of cool. You know, given the history of race relations in our culture, we tend to think of race in terms of colors. And here, Paul is saying God's mysterious plan is to unveil this multicolored wisdom in the church. One of the things I'm so thankful for at our church, we're just over seven years old now. One of the things that I see as a sign of maturity and a sign of the fruit of the Holy Spirit working us becoming a spiritual house being built together is that we've become more and more diverse, more and more multicolored as we grow as a church. That's a, a I want to say a natural outgrowth of the Spirit. It's, it's supernatural, right? It's something the Spirit does. So supernaturally, the Spirit does this. When the Spirit is at work in a body of believers, it becomes more and more diverse so that we can see the multicolored wisdom of God on display. 
That's one of the promises that God gives us. That's one of the beautiful ways that people will see the Spirit at work among us. I was thinking of an illustration of this, and the best I could come up with just seems to fall way short here. I've got the, uh, a picture of the It's a Small World After All ride, if any of you... You know, you know the song, at least? Some of you, any of you been on the ride? Raise your hand if you've been on the ride. It's Disney World or Disneyland. Um, it's great. You know, when your kids aren't terrified by it, it can be a really fun one for the... For the children, you know, sometimes the little robot people are, are frightening, but a lot of times it's fun. And in that ride, we have this picture of kind of this, all the tribes of the world being united as one. It's a beautiful vision. Although it's interesting, you come away from the ride, not really sure how it's accomplished, right? I mean, I guess just in general, it could be accomplished by just the beauty and wonder of, of Walt Disney, I guess, right? I mean, that, maybe, maybe that's how it works, um, Maybe it's just great rides like this will cause us all to have unity. Um, But it it seems like Paul is saying something bigger and deeper and stronger has to happen. Because we're pretty pretty entrenched in our tribes. We're pretty entrenched in seeing things the way we see things and doing things our way and not seeing other people's side of things. And so I think, again, it's important to, to see the progression in the text where he says it's Christ. He's the sledgehammer that brings down the walls. And, and the hostility really is with God. He's the one that we're fighting against. And when we come to terms with that, that is supernatural. That is a miracle. When someone has repented and given themselves up and changed their direction and begin trusting the God that they were hostile with before, that is supernatural, and that, again, results that then will bear the fruit of us having peace with other people, of us actually being able to get along with each other. We talk a lot about encouraging you to get involved in community with other Christians, not to just uh, gather for worship, but also gather for community where you can help each other and encourage each other and pray for each other. And that's where the real work of Christian growth takes place where we're rubbing shoulders with other people that we just think, frankly, are weird, right? We're just like, why would they do it that way? Why would they say it this way? Why would they eat that? Why would they dress like that? And there's a supernatural thing that happens when the church comes together and we grow in our faith, trusting Jesus, not trusting our culture, but trusting Jesus to transform us and to show us what's right. I would challenge you to think through this season. We have, we have a little time for reflection, usually during the holidays, if you're not too busy with, you know, with parties and fun, have a little more time for reflection. Think through, God, what are ways that I could live this out? What are ways that I can uh, display the multicolored wisdom of God? Have peace with other people, with diverse tribes. God, what, what could that look like in my life? Because I don't know the details of your situation, but I know God wants to use you to display his glory in this way in your life. Uh, One of the common commands in the New Testament is that we would practice hospitality. We are to practice hospitality. Christians are supposed to be a people of hospitality. And usually, uh, the first thing we think of is having somebody over for a meal, right? Is that the first thing you thought of when I said hospitality? Raise your hand if that's what you thought of. Okay. That's a great way to do it, okay? So do that. We want to do that. We want to do more of that. We want to be a body that has people over, that takes each other out to lunch, right? Eating together is great, but But the word literally means affection for outsiders. That's what hospitality means. We should be a people that love outsiders. So pray that God would allow you to be that kind of person. Say, God, show me ways that I need to have affection for outsiders. Show me ways that I can reach out 
to other people, that I can show that in tangible ways. And again, a meal is just, that's a common way, right? So that's where we run to that. That's a great way to do it. Share a meal. But what are other ways that you can listen, that you can love, that you can give time to people that are different to you? And as we practice that, based on the reconciliation we have with God, the multicolored wisdom of God will be revealed in us. As we have peace with him and peace with each other. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and that you've shown us that love through Jesus. And I pray that it would work itself out in real, tangible ways in our life. That you would transform us as individuals and therefore transform us as a community that honors you in our relationships and in our love for those that are different than us. Help us to be faithful, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.